Amen. Thank you, sisters and Harriet with two R's and two T's. Um, All right, now I'll be honest. I forget exactly how I did this if I decided to start with something different this time or if I decided to start with the verses. Um, So go ahead, Betsy. Let me see the next slide after that one just so I know where I'm at. All right. Um, So this time I wanted to share a little bit about with you guys, um, usually, whenever, uh, always, whenever I start a new series on a particular book, I get books to help me read to go over those things, so I become more knowledgeable and share that knowledge with you. Um, And so this time I actually read from J.P. Moreland, who wrote, Love the Lord your God with all of your mind, that we should start giving out bibliographies to our congregations, so that if they wanted to read those books, they could. So I'm just going to, this is my bibliography, that these are the guys I read when I prepare my sermons, basically. So if you are interested in ever purchasing one of these books, let me know, and we'll figure it out. Um, But I wanted to go through it real quick. The first is John Calvin's commentaries. Um, To be honest, I don't always get a chance to read John Calvin. I wish I did. Um, He was, as you may know, one of the leaders during the Protestant Reformation, very influential, especially in our, I would say in more ways than you could possibly imagine, because it wasn't just in regards to theology or biblical studies, it was also in regards to even culture and government. Um, He was from Geneva, and the whole checks and balances thing, almost some think, originated from Geneva. So we have a lot of a debt to owe to John Calvin. Um, But yeah, so John Calvin, the next one is James Dunn. And this is the epistles to the Colossians and to, the, uh, and to Philemon. And I forget what the NIGTC stands for, but it's the commentary series. Um, next one is the ESV study Bible. And I put that on there because my Bible is a study Bible, so it comes with a bunch of notes. And I'll read over those notes too. And the maps that I steal <laughs> are from, from the study Bible. So um, just so everyone's aware, the ESV study Bible. Uh, I've got Douglas Moo, who is one of the pinnacle scholars in evangelicalism these days. Uh, he, uh, he wrote a commentary on the Colossians and Philemon as well, and so I'm using his. Um, and that is the Pillar New Testament commentary series, and I've used one of theirs before. And we've also got David Powell from the Zondervan exegetical commentary on the New Testament. <laughs> uh, Powell, actually, Clinton Arnold, both of them, they're very good scholars, and I would recommend that one as well. And I think there might be one more, maybe not. Nope. All right, so those are the ones that I'm using. These are the guys I'm reading. Um, I was letting some people know, you know, the introduction to each of these books that they provide is like 50 to 100 pages. So that's why I, I've taken a li- I always try to take a little bit of extra time to read over all that material before we start the new series. But these are the ones that I'm looking at. Um, all right, so now we're going to go ahead and continue with our normal opening for a new series. I'm going to turn that off for now. All right, so generally when we begin a new sermon series on a new book of the Bible, um, I focus on four things. The first is who the author was. The second, who the recipients were. The third, the approximation, the date of the book. And the fourth, the reason for writing the book or the letter. Um, Now, for the majority of these questions, usually when I would do this right now, I'm going to actually wait. Uh, when we deal with it in the first few verses in Colossians. So because of that, I'm only going to focus on the last question, which is why? Why was Colossians written? 
And the answer most conclude is that the author was attempting to present their teaching against another teaching. And there have been a number of arguments as to whether or not the author was writing against a false teaching or heretical teaching or maybe even another form of Christian thought at the time. Um, So they might not consider it false or heretical. Now, the biggest problem that commentators and scholars have is that we don't know what the other teaching was. We don't have the letters that they were writing. We don't have um, a complete thesis of, hey, this is what we're presenting, and then whoever wrote this letter is presenting this. We don't have that. We only have one side of the story. And because of that, some scholars are hesitant to speak too greatly against the teaching. Others, however, do see that it was a false teaching which in some way or another went against the main Christian teaching that is presented in Colossians and the rest of the Bible. Um, And to me, that makes the most sense, the most likely explanation for the letter. To me, or to what I've read, the believers who first received the letter were were encountering a different belief or different thought than the one that they had originally received in the gospel. And because of that, the author felt the need to step in and teach them a right in light of this other teaching. So that's why Colossians is written. And to be honest, if you're going to go ahead and read any of the New Testament, that's why the majority of the New Testament is written, is to combat false teachings. So that's what happened here. All right, so now we're going to get actually to the verses. Colossians 1 and 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Alright, so these are the first two verses. I know we're going over just two, and it's the introduction. It's like, how are you going to make a sermon out of this, Pastor? Challenge accepted. That's right. Alright, so the first verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Um, The first thing we notice is that the question of who wrote Colossians is being answered in this first verse. Now, as with the majority of letters at this time, when a letter was written, the author would state their name and then follow with who they were writing to. And it's similar to me saying, okay, my name is Sean and I am writing to Bill. Though usually what we do is, um, greetings, Dan, Sean speaking. So we kind of reversed it in today's age. But that's how they used to write. Um, Now, there's a problem and there's a debate here. And that there's a lot of debate about Colossians and the author. Clearly, Paul is the one who is stated at the beginning of the letter, along with Timothy. Yet modern scholarship has had its moments of doubt that Paul actually wrote Colossians for a few reasons, and I'm going to focus on two of them. The first reason is the language. When compared to the majority of the other letters uh, which scholars are sure were written by Paul, the language is very different in those letters than in this one. So when we think of Romans or 1 Corinthians, there are different words used as compared to the letters or to the the words in this text. Now, personally, I do not find, I do find this lacking for an obvious reason, which is that there's an assumption that Paul only knew certain words um, and that he only spoke those words and those particular words when he was writing. Now, this seems to me to be an assumption to make seeing as Paul was clearly fluent in the Greek language, so to assume that those were the only words, the words that he used in 1 Corinthians and in Romans were the only words that he ever used, seems illogical to me. Um, I don't think that it holds much weight. 
Now, the second argument against Paul writing the letter is that the theology, specifically the Christology, the teaching about Jesus, is considered too advanced for Paul. And I know you're all thinking, how could a theology be too advanced for Paul? Um, And the problem with this argument is that there is an assumption that Paul could not have further developed or had this deeper understanding of Christ revealed to him as he continued his ministry. So scholars are sitting there saying, okay, the words are different and the theology is too advanced, therefore Paul could not have written it. I don't think that those are good arguments. Um, Likewise, a problem with the argument that Paul did not write the letter is that Paul is mentioned as the author immediately in the text, and at the end of the letter, Paul wrote his name. So some argue, however, that this is pseudepigraphal, uh, that it is written by someone who claimed to have been Paul but wasn't, or by someone who supposed Pauline authority. So this would be kind of like um, First Enoch, where it wasn't Enoch who wrote the book, but they said it was Enoch. And that's what they're saying happened here. So because of these arguments, some have concluded that Paul was not the author of the letter. And now there's a few different specifics to this view, some that modern scholars hold. The first is that it was written by Timothy under Paul's supervision. The second is that it was written by Timothy, which Paul simply signed off on at the end. The third is that it was written by Timothy without Paul having any knowledge of it, um, possibly because he had already passed away even. And the fourth is that it wasn't even Timothy who wrote it uh, at all, but it was someone else, some other student of Paul's, who had further advanced his thought on these particular issues that we encounter in Colossians. Those who hold these views still see the authority in the text, since it is directly descended from Paul in some way. So Paul could have claimed authority, assuming that he was still alive if he had not died already. All right. Personally, this is now me talking. The rest of that was scholars, and you're all asleep. I know. Wake up. Personally, I am unconvinced of the majority of the arguments against Paul's authorship. The only one that I might entertain is that Timothy wrote it under Paul's supervision, which would not be that strange since Paul often, if not always, had his letters transcribed um, on his behalf. So the arguments against Paul's authorship are not strong enough for me, um, and I tend to lean toward recognizing Paul is the author and will henceforth consider it written by Paul. Now, I do want to add something, Betsy, before we continue on with the PowerPoint. One other argument that I personally make against the idea that Paul didn't write the letter is that, you know what? Let's say that I am talking to Mike. And I say, Mike, can you talk to me a little bit about Jesus and the cross? He's going to use specific words about Jesus and the cross, yeah? Now if I ask him about the resurrection, he's going to use specific words about the resurrection which may not correlate at all to the cross. Um, and that's, so the argument that, okay, Paul could not have written both letters and that he, uh, because of the different language and because of the different theology, I don't think it holds weight because today we see that happen all the time. I could have a conversation with any one of you about a particular topic and then have another conversation with you about a topic and say, okay, you know what? I didn't use the same words at all. Does that make it not me who talked? No, of course not. Um, So being all technical, I would still again say that Paul did at least write it or at least have Timothy with him as he wrote it, as the text says. Now, the date for the letter is harder to determine. That's not true. It's 
not as hard as that. Most scholars who assume Paul's authorship or supervision of the date of the letter was around the early 50s, so 50, 51, 52, or the early 60s, so 60, 61, 62. If it was the early 50s, it was likely written from Ephesus, um, since, as we know in Acts, Paul was there for about three years. If it was written in the 60s, then it was written from Rome when Paul was under house arrest. And personally, I lean toward the 60s and therefore Rome. So, my two cents. All right. As Mike says, our Mike clear as mud. So, we're done with that. We're done with the technical. Okay, I promise we're done with the technical. No, we're good. <laughs> I always have to do that to you all. I'm sorry. It's how we begin letters. <laughs> anyway... We learn that the letter was written from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The fact that Paul reminds them of his apostleship is likely reminiscent of his authority as the apostle of the Gentiles. Um, the letter was written to an area which Paul had been very active when it comes to ministry, though he himself had never been to Colossae or Laodicea, which is near there. Now, Paul continues with recognition of Christ Jesus. It's hard to pinpoint exactly why Paul mentioned Christ at this juncture per se. The fact that Paul is an apostle of Christ can mean anything from that's the foundation of his authority to the simple recognition that Paul is bound to Christ. Um, either way, regardless, uh, Paul's apostleship is not his own. It was given to him by the will of God. It is not as though Paul claims to be an ambassador of Christ in his own right, nor does he claim to have authority on his own right. Instead, the authority is given to him by God. We then notice that Timothy is mentioned. Now, who is Timothy? Timothy was a brother, that is a member of the faith, who accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. And in a way, many consider Timothy to be Paul's protege. Um, one of his great students. Still, we wonder, why is Timothy mentioned? There are three possible explanations. The first is, if Paul is in prison, Timothy may have acted as a secretary to Paul. Um, in this way, he would have helped Paul with his letters, and in doing so in various ways, Timothy deserved credit for helping Paul during this time. The other is that if Timothy wrote the letter and Paul signed off on it, and the third is that Timothy may have been from the area, um, so Laodicea from, from Colossae, as we will see shortly. Thus, he might have been able to give Paul better insight into what was happening in the area. The ultimate point, however, is that in the first few verses, or the first verse, we see two individuals who are involved with the writing of the letter. The first is Paul, and the second is Timothy. Now, let's lead us to the second verse. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This verse answers the question, who was the letter written to? For here we find it is written to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Colossae was located in what was modern day Turkey, and we do have a map because I like maps. And as you see, I actually put down the ESV Bible reference there, so I'm not technically being too illegal. Um... Alright, so right here, what they do is, here's Colossae. Ephesus is about 100 miles away. Corinth is about 400 miles away. And they, what they do is they expand it to bring it up closer. You see Ephesus, Preen, um, Magnesia. And then over here is Colossae, next to Laodicea. Um, as you might know, Laodicea was one of the churches written to in Revelation. But that's the area that Paul is writing to. That 
Turkey area, second half of Turkey, next to Greece, basically. Um, so now you know the area. Now, to address the Colossians as saints and faithful brothers in Christ is a way for them to remember their place. While it is true that they are located in Colossae, they are more bound to being in Christ than to their city. Like most of Paul's letters, he offers grace and peace. Grace is a common theme within Paul's writings, as we know, and as such, uh, may be a way for him to remind them of the grace which they have, be- have being in Christ. Likewise, peace says an Old Testament concept of shalom, uh, which is further fulfilled in Christ, is probably in view. So this eschatological end times peace, which comes from God on his people. So peace to you and grace in that capacity. All right. So the main point. The main point of these two verses are to tell us two things in particular. The first is who wrote the letter. The second is to whom the letter was written. Ultimately, we find that the letter was written by Paul and or a combination of Paul and Timothy. Meanwhile, the letter was written to the believers who were in Colossae. Application points. All right. We're two verses into Colossians. Now, I'm wondering how many of you are wondering what on earth can we apply to these two ver- from these two verses? Who's thinking that right now? <laughs> I got one from Mike. I'm happy. <laughs> um, well, I want to say, technically, there's a number of things we could get from these two verses. For example, we could talk about apostolic authority and how Paul had such authority. Uh, we could discuss how Paul had the authority to proclaim the gospel and to plant churches, to be a teacher within the church, and how he was ordained not by the church, but by God. Likewise, we could also discuss how important it is for us to be teachers to those who are following us. Timothy, after all, was a disciple of Paul, and we know that Timothy needed not that knowledge in order to more faithfully follow Christ where he was called to be. The same is true for us in the Christian faith 2,000 years later. But I am not going to dwell too greatly on those two thoughts. Instead, a third thought arose concerning these two verses, and especially about the second verse. In fact, there are two things from that verse that should be sticking out to us. And both are tied up in how Paul and or Timothy address the Colossians. The first has to do with their identity. It is true that the Colossians were people from, uh, or people whom the letter was written. However, notice what Paul says, and that he does not say that he is writing to Colossians. Now, some of you are thinking, what? Well, consider it. Paul specifically says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Their identity is not bound to their native city. It is not bound to the fact that they are at Colossae. It is in Christ that their identities are found. Consider it further. If Paul were writing, it, writing to us, to this church, how do you think that he would begin the letter? Do you think he would say, to the American Christians, or to the Pennsylvanians, or to the Westfieldians, I didn't know how to call us, <laughs> so I just thought. <laughs> now, personally, personally, I hope that he would not say that to us. Why? 
Because while being an American, a Pennsylvanian, a person from Westfield, a Westfieldian, is wonderful, and we are blessed, the simple truth is that our national identity is not where we find our greatest identity. If we are fixated on the idea of our America and letting that be what um, our most important identifier is in our lives, then I would say we're missing the point of Christianity altogether. And unfortunately, this is something I believe we tend to miss while being in this, for the most part, great country. Even we who are faithful can get fixated on this idea of being an American Christian when we should be fixated on being a Christian at America. Why? Because it deals with identity. Who you are as a person. When the world looks at you, do they see someone draped in a flag with a cross behind them, or do they see someone who is soaked in the blood of Christ? Now, before anyone thinks that I am some KGB member telling you to be unpatriotic, I am certainly not. (laughs) I am not part of the KGB because they technically don't exist anymore, nor do I believe that we should be unpatriotic. Instead, it is a reminder that we are called to a higher sphere than even our native lands and our native countries can bring us to. It is to recognize that while we live in America, while we engage the culture that our first and our foremost thought should always be that you and I are in Christ. So that is the first point. Just as the Colossians are called saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, the same should be true of us. Our identity is not primarily found in our nation, but in Jesus. This will have direct ramifications for us, for it means that we will be countercultural, showing the nation a better way, which is Christ. Yet there is a second point, and perhaps an even more profound thought that comes after this. Notice, faithful brothers in Christ. That statement is powerful for more than the reason we just discussed. For with that statement comes the realization that we are family in Christ. This concept of family ties back to even the first verse when we read, and Timothy, the brother. When we look around at each other every week, what do you see? When you see me up here and I'm preaching, who do you see? When you look to the person to your left, to your right, in front of you, behind you, what crosses your mind about that person? Some of you may have a history. Ellen might look to David and say, he owes me $5. (laughs) It all all equals up. Um, But think further than that. For if the person next to you, in front of you, behind you, is in Christ, and that means that they are your family in Christ. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only this, but they are brothers and sisters to Christ. Which means further, they have a Father in Heaven, and so do you. Tell me, how great an identity is this? We individually, corporately belong to the great God in Christ. And in all honesty, I think this is why Paul says it this way. To remind the readers that they may be part of the greatest empire at the time. They're in Roman Empire, Pax Romana. The Roman Empire had the greatest peace at the time. 
And they may have the largest armies, which they did. They may have the greatest wealth, which they did, and they had the most security. Yet compare it to Christ. Being in Christ, they are sons and daughters of a God who has cattle on a thousand hills, who is the commander of angel armies. And once we are in his hands, none can take us away. Tell me, is it not the same for us? Are we not in a great land with great wealth, with great armies, with great overall security? But remember, the wealth of God, the strength of God, the security found in our God. Is this inheritance not greater than any other inheritance? Have we perhaps begun to forget that there is so much more we are living for? Is it possible, just maybe, we have forgotten or become distracted from who we are to be instead? Indeed, what we are instead. This society wants to destroy us. It wants to make us look like fools. It will throw Christ in our face while not knowing him at all. It will try to explain to us what it really means to be a Christian. To make us look bad. To make us look miserable while at the same time try to merge what we know is true in Christ with what is false in the world. Are you prepared to know your place? Are you ready to begin to truly love the people around you, the nation around you, to truly transform this world even? It doesn't begin with the place where you are at. It begins with who you are in, who we belong to, and that is we belong to God if we are in Christ. Let this transform our thinking and our living. Let us transform the way we see our society around us. Let it remind us to be patient, kind, loving, gentle, while at the same time be willing to call out darkness for what it is, even the society in which we live. Immerse yourself in Christ. Let nothing in your life escape the reality of being in Christ. If Jesus is our Lord, if he is the anointed one, the Christ, then let us believe that he is the Lord and let us live knowing he is the Lord. We are brothers and sisters if we are in Christ. The world is in desperate need of a people such as this. A people who know their place in the world. A people who will seek to transform the world for the glory of God. We are that people. The encouragement is to be who we are called to be, the saints and the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever we may be. And so, of course, that leads us to the gospel. Um, And you know what? I'll be honest. It's a lot easier to see the gospel in the New Testament than in the Old Testament, isn't it? Um, I'm sure that you could even read... (laughs) those first two verses and think, okay, yeah, I see Jesus. He's mentioned. (laughs) It's hard not to. Whereas when we were going through Amos and Joel, it was a little bit harder to see, okay, where can I find the gospel in this? Where is Jesus in here? Um, But still, the gospel's still here. The gospel is here in the fact that you and I can become family members in Christ, that we are called to sainthood in Christ, and that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one who saves us from our sins. He is the anointed one. He is the Lord. Um, And so it's because of this that we can easily identify the gospel here. And 
we might not be able to identify all of it, or, but we will be able to identify certain aspects. But the beginning of the gospel is, of course, our creation. We are created in the image of God. Um, that means that you have an implant, imprint of God on you. That you are able to reason, to love, to know, to be known, to have morality, to seek out the glory of God. You can do all these things because God, he has all those attributes as well. And it's because of this that we must always stand steadfast to recognize the truth. That human life has dignity, it has worth, and that it has sanctity. Because if we don't stand for those things, guess what? The world won't either. Now the problem, of course, is, is that if we are in Christ, and, or if we are made in the image of God, I should say, that we also have the problem of choice. And our problem is, is that we choose to go against God and choose to sin. And that's the first choice, bad choice that Adam and Eve made was that they decided to fall into sin. And because of that, we've all fallen into sin as well. Um, and it's because of that, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're all broken. And we see that brokenness, I think, every day. I know I experience that brokenness. I've experienced the reality of sin in my own life, of the fallenness of not feeling like I'm right with my creator or with anyone around me. And it's a true reality, I think, for all of us that we've all been there. And we all, even sometimes, even after Christ, we come to that conclusion and realize that still, that we struggle against it. And because of this, so even further is, sin causes us to have guilt. And that guilt leads to death. For the wages of sin is death. And so God must judge us. He must judge us because he is a righteous God. And so that's our biggest problem. So the question is, how can we be redeemed from our sin? How can we not be judged? How can we not experience death for all eternity? And the answer is Jesus Christ. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are redeemed. It is through him that we no longer experience the guilt of sin. That means that all that sin that you've experienced all throughout your entire life is now washed clean. It means that not only is it washed clean, it's not as though Christ washes you clean and then you've got to work up all this goodness in order to get to heaven. No. What Christ does is he washes it clean and then he takes all the righteousness that's on his back and puts it on at yours. And so that means... You don't have to work for it. It's already been attained. Christ did it. Now, of course, that leads us to the reality that we are called to live repentant lifestyles. Um, those who are truly in Christ recognize that, you know what? To love our God is to follow after him. To live according to how he calls us to live. To repent of our sin and turn away from our sin and to live for this God. Um, and so that's the first thing. That's the first reality is that we are called to live a certain way. But it's also a recognition that, you know what, faith is what saves us. It is by grace through faith in Christ. And how wonderful that redemption is. Now the future for those who are in Christ is glorification. But the future for those who are outside of Christ is darkness. Those who do not repent of their sins, those who do not place their faith in Christ... Unfortunately, they will experience an eternal judgment. 
And we talked a little bit about this last week. We don't really know what that looks like, unfortunately. But we do know that it involves a second death. And maybe that's part of it or a great deal of it. But for those who are in Christ, however, they don't experience a second death. If you are in Christ, that means that you're a family of God, and the family of God does not taste death. Instead, what will happen is you'll live forever in Christ, in a kingdom that was designed for those who are in Christ. How wonderful a thing. And you know what? I think in this life, we all struggle with sin still. We all have. I know I have. And so sometimes it can feel like the love of God, you know what? It's there, but we have to reach for it in some capacity. But guess what? There's going to come a time when there's no more reaching, when it'll surround you and it'll immerse you and you will know every day that you are loved by God. And I can't wait for that. I can't wait. Um, all right. So we're first two verses in Colossians. A lot of technical stuff. I'm glad you're all still awake. <laughs> but we also see a lot of the gospel here too. In just two verses. A lot. And so I want to encourage you as we continue through Colossians, as we continue through um, working through what Paul has written, that we would open our minds to know God. And that we would continue to strive to seek him in all that we do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you that you are truly wonderful in what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. That through Jesus, we become your family. And that through Jesus, we can look around and see our family around us, which means that we are never alone. For we have you with us personally, and you are with us corporately. Within each of us, guiding each of us to walk along each other in grace and in this peace. So Lord, grant us these things and remind us of these things and put them on our hearts that we would seek out all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, for his glory because it's because of him. And let us never forget, never forget who we are instead in this world. That we are saints and faithful brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ, in this world. And we have a duty. Let us not forget it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our